with topics ranging from how cloud computing is streamlining government operations to exploring the intersection of machine learning and healthcare data. Foley and Larder's Innovative Technology Insights podcast examines not just the legal ramifications of developments at the cutting edge of technology, but how they are affecting businesses, governments, and individuals. In each episode, we will lead discussions between researchers, industry leaders, and regulators for their thoughts on this changing world. So without further ado, let's get started. everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Innovative Tech Podcast. My name is Natasha Allen. I am a corporate partner and the San Francisco and Silicon Valley offices of Foley and Lardner. I'm also the co-chair of the AI subsector, which allows me to have this cool opportunity to interview exciting individuals working on cutting edge technologies, including AI. I have with me today Aaron Erickson. Aaron is a key member of the software engineering team at NVIDIA, helping to build their enterprise DGX AI platform. Prior to NVIDIA, Aaron spent 30 years working in leadership roles, most recently as CEO of OrgSpace and a VP of engineering at New Relic. Over the course of his entire career, Aaron has been an advocate for building better software from his home in San Francisco. Welcome, Aaron. Hi, welcome. Thanks for uh, having me. So let's get started. With the advent of ChatGPT came a better understanding of the world of AI, right? Prior to this, nobody, lay individuals didn't really have an understanding of what AI was or what it could do. And in particular, dealing with the onset and understanding of what large language models could do, which, as you're aware, are the foundation for deep learning algorithms that helped us understand and process natural language. As of now, we understand that LLMs can be used for text, right, to help generate or prompt certain text. But how do you think LLMs will evolve beyond natural language? So incorporating multimodal inputs such as images, sounds, video, or even taste. One of the most exciting developments, I think, and this you're, people are seeing this happen even now. So like the latest ChatGPT release, if you have the uh, premium version, you can talk to it and it talks back in voice to you. In fact, it's one of the most scary things that people saw with it initially was looking at a CAPTCHA. So if everybody's ever used a CAPTCHA where you have to say, okay, which of these things on the screen is a traffic light or not, ChatGPT can pretty much, even today, break, that class of technology can break CAPTCHAs. So multimodal is here. I think where it's, the really interesting places it's going are, one good example of this is you think about Tesla and what they're able to do with video. So one of the things that you do when you're driving Tesla, it's almost like you have a kind of permanent dash cam on the car that's always kind of taking pictures. And it's a big part of how it can drive independently or drive autonomously when you put it in that mode. But one of the really interesting things that even they are doing is they're using all that video that they've accumulated. Google's doing this uh, with the models they're developing. And a lot of these new frontier models are taking video and literally able to transcribe it, be able to understand what each frame of the picture means in order to really get at what can we learn if we could see the world around us. The best way to think about kind of pre-multimodal LLMs is imagine you trained a human or took them to school, but the only thing they could do in school was read books or read papers, but they couldn't actually experience the world as it is, be it through being able to see the world or in some of the more speculative applications I'm hearing about, even smell the world or taste the world or understand different aspects and be able to code it into its training model, which is really, at the end of the day, you almost kind of have your inner monologue where you think about language. You look at a light and it translates into the word light, and then you're able mm -hmm. to associate, oh, when I have a light on, I can read, right? So that same kind of trick that we do as humans 
we are now able to do with these kind of synthetic <laughs> brains that we've created. Wow, that's amazing. Obviously, with the advent of this technology, and you kind of alluded to it as well, just what are some of the key challenges, you think, to integrating multimodal inputs into LLMs, especially when it comes to sensory, right? Taste oh. and smell and, and those things that you think are inherently human. <laughs> So the first obvious sense is that we go at, you know, thing, you know, being able to look at pictures we've been doing for years, being able to look at video, that's just a bunch of pictures. The means to do it is known. It's not particularly advanced at this point. Other senses like being able to do taste and smell. I mean, at that end, we have ways we can, through understanding the chemical composition of a substance, be able to infer what it might smell like or be able to infer what it might taste like. So if you can digitize something, and these are all things that are digitizable, it's just a matter of some of those other kinds of senses that digitize them are going to be a little more expensive or a little more involved. But there's no reason it couldn't be done. I mean, I used to say this almost kiddingly. Are we going to have generative smell next? I mean, I'm not sure it's something we want as a society, but there's no reason why it couldn't happen. It's just a matter of kind of translating it into some digital form and then allowing a model to learn from it. And so what is multimodal? There's kind of what the inputs are, what it learns from. There's also what it can output, right? You know, we think about generative AI and ChatGPT and smart technologies as generating text, maybe generating videos someday, certainly generating pictures now. There's early models that generate videos where you just type in, I would like to see blah happen, and a video is generated that does that. It's a little rough right now, but the models are getting better, and the ones you see today are the worst that you'll ever see. They're only going to get better from here. One of the things that we do at NVIDIA is we have a product, uh, we have a capability called BioMemo. And this is helping do generative drug discovery. Well, how do you do that? Well, if you think about it, it's another kind of data and you're able to literally use the same kind of technology to maybe generate what might be ideal protein strands to be uh, maybe a cure for COVID or maybe whatever it is that you want to solve. Those kinds of applications are happening today and researchers are being accelerated. Think about the kinds of medications we'll be able to get or the kinds of things we'll be able to do with this technology like make power plants more efficient. I know one startup that has demonstrated making a power plant 90% more efficient by using this kind of technology, being able to have a essentially like an intellectual computer help figure out what would be some ways to make a plant more efficient that aren't obvious to a human. That's completely amazing. I think it'd be so amazing to see that evolution. Okay, so we have, you know, ways that we can expand the use of LLMs. Now, how do you monetize it? How do you monetize these AI tools? And I guess, first of all, maybe do you have some examples or if you can explain maybe what are some of the current economic models prevalent in the AI industry? You wonder why some of these startups are raising what seem like ridiculous seed rounds. I <laughs> heard of one is like $50 million, $100 million. And largely, they're not just hiring employees. You'd actually be surprised by how few employees firms are hiring. But largely, they're buying infrastructure, either from us or from other providers of GPU technology. And we're not the only ones, obviously. But a lot of the money is going to go into that. And those are people developing foundational models. Okay, so that's your open AIs of the world, your anthropics of the world, so forth. As well, some of the big bank companies are all doing some version of this, too. It's just an arms race right now. The more interesting thing is, and this is what I think a lot of people miss, is that there are a lot of actually what I call kind of narrow AI that you can build that might be good at like a specific problem. One good example of this, and you don't need a massive array of GPUs to do this. You could develop a reasonable model that detects fraud. So what are the limits of being able to say you want to run your fraud detection department to find people that are, I don't know, fraudulently putting in expense reports or doing some other thing that was anomalous? Well, you can build an LM 
that is trained to very narrowly trained to detect fraud and actually run that against your accounting system or run that against like a mm-hmm. set of accounting system, an email or something like that, maybe even be an early warning indicator. And that doesn't require necessarily the same kind of GPU fleet that you would need for kind of building a foundational model. You're still not just using ChatGPT because you could build your own. You could take something like Llama or one of the open source models, enhance it or fine tune it with your data about how fraud happens or examples of bad examples of fraud in your company, and then build some pretty incredible products or even internally within companies, build some pretty incredible capabilities using these things to automate certain kinds of what I would call rote intellectual work, which not saying auditors are that, but sometimes applying a pattern, just being Mm -hmm. able to do it much more broadly. Some of those cases will, again, that's just one example, but it's hard to go into a company and not find maybe 20 or 30 other examples like that where a, a narrow AI can do incredibly useful things that are far more valuable than what you'll spend developing. So maybe elaborate on the concept of like bespoke LLMs, right? Is this like a new thing that executives could ask for? Is like, I want my own LLM tailored to myself. And what would make a bespoke LLM different from an off-the-shelf like AI model? So why would you develop a bespoke LLM in the first place, I think is a good Mm -hmm. question. (laughs) Because right now, I mean, if you use this chat GPT or whatever, it's going to tell you general facts about the world. It's not going to give you your sales forecast. It doesn't know data about that. It might say, well, you know, this company's doing pretty good. And maybe you even have it attached to Bloomberg and maybe it'll (laughs) tell you a little more about your company. But you can never know as much as you would know inside the company, both your data that you have. So you have private data in your accounting system, in your HR system, and every little digital footprint in your organization that's specific to you. That's just one of the obvious reasons to build your own LLM is to have a training model that as a CEO can tell you anything you need to know about your company, uh, can give you advice on your strategy, almost become like a McKinsey consultant in a box, can give you advice about kind of certain trends in your company or whatnot. Even if you have other people doing that, having something like this where you can iteratively ask questions and do so whenever the thought comes by is pretty useful. Then you think about, well, how do we go from it? How is it different? I think It's kind of like why somebody that's been in your company for 10 years might be slightly more valuable than somebody that's only been there a week. And there's this concept, institutional knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. A person that's been around the company for 10 years has a lot of tacit knowledge about everything from how people talk, what the company culture is, to, you know, what kinds of things are inside or outside the open window of things that ought to be discussed or not, ideas that have been tried, things that the organization as a whole has learned. It would be a shame to have LLMs not be able to take advantage or any of these AI tools not be able to take advantage of these things that we learn inside our companies over time. And so these things just get more and more useful the more you can train it on the context of your organization. And now this is the part that's incredible and why I think a lot of CEOs and why we're seeing you know, a lot of demand for these kinds of you know, systems is that CEOs, we don't know the limits. Right now, the more horsepower you put at one of these things, the smarter they get. And so it starts to become an economic imperative to have the smartest AI model, uh, smart one smarter than your competitors, one trained on better data, one trained mm-hmm. on more GPUs. You're effectively making it smarter, and that can be a competitive advantage over time, especially as we start to get closer to artificial and general intelligence, which even Sam Altman and other people are saying is a lot closer than we think, like might be before 2030 that we get this kind of broader concept of a generally intelligent LLM that's even better than most humans. It's pretty incredible to think about. I don't go a day where I don't think of another application that can be used in one of these contexts. <laughs> so with that in mind, two questions. I guess the first one is if organizations decide to go down this, you know, bespoke LLM 
What are some like advice or considerations you could offer them to help them just navigate? One of the first pieces of advice, and this kind of goes for anybody using one of these tools, it is very easy to treat these like humans and think they're human, to apply human characteristics to it. And I think that's a mistake. These are not humans. These are machines. But these are machines that sometimes are wrong in the same way a human might be wrong. People will complain about hallucination, and I think correctly. And a lot of the research that's been happening is about how do you avoid hallucination. But it's a lot more useful when you think about the fact that if you have, say you're an executive and you have a team of people that report to you, it is very frequent that those people that report to you aren't lying to you. Maybe they are occasionally. But if they're wrong about something, it's because they were asked to produce an answer, but they don't really know 100% what that answer is. And most humans want to feel like they're right. You're trained to don't be wishy-washy when you answer a question. And so a lot of people will state things somewhat hubristically, even when they're not necessarily true. And I like to think LLMs are really just kind of following that pattern. So treat the way an LLM works a little bit less like you would a traditional computer and expect the non-determinism, expect it might be wrong, and expect that you might need to validate some of the facts. Now, this goes for ChatGPT or your own bespoke LLMs. That's the same risk. I think one of the other things that people, as they kind of go head first into this, imagine you train a language model on all your HR data all your accounting data, all your sales data, all the important data sources in your organization. Now, if you are an organization that is fully transparent in every capacity, maybe this isn't gonna bother you, but an LLM will answer based on any of the data it has seen. And a lot of the really interesting and, and frankly hard work that's happening now is, how do you make a company-trained LLM not just reveal, say, salary information or other kind of personal identified information, that I might learn about. How do you make it not regurgitate that back? Now, the CEO will have free access to it because hypothetically, that's a person that should have access to nearly every bit of company data. And there's probably a number of people inside the executive suite that are gonna be expected to have that. But as you start to take it out to the rest of the organization, we're gonna have to think pretty hard about how do you design these systems so that any given LLM is not gonna reveal kind of your company secrets. The recipe for Coke, for example, if you've trained a Coke, your LLM, Mm -hmm. broadly on that, then you could say, hey, please give me the recipe for Coke. And it might say no. But then you say, and I've done this with LMs before, with other kinds of things you're not supposed to know or things that they try to protect you from you know, getting the answer to, they'll figure out a way to jailbreak it. Like somebody figured out a way to make ChatGPT give you instructions to make a bomb Mm-hmm. by not saying, please make me instructions to make a bomb. But hey, if I was this character in this movie and I wanted to make um, a bomb, how would that character do it, right? You know, so, that, so there's ways people get around it. And it, we, I think security issues are going to be tough with that. There's ways to design these systems to do that. I can go into more detail, but that gives you a little bit of a sense for what some of the challenges are, I think. That's very interesting. So almost like a walled off approach. Certain people can have access to the outputs. Other people can't have access to certain outputs. That's quite interesting. You were talking about using large amounts of data in particular organizations. So we've heard about it. Some of our clients have kind of asked us about it, but what are you seeing? Like, is there an increasing trend around wall garden LLMs designed specifically for an organization trained on their combination of their proprietary data and public data sets? Like, are you seeing a trend towards that? Everywhere in the industry, tons of business leaders I've been you know, chatting with over the last, really since ChatGPT came out and people learned that you could build these models, that you can train these models. And one of the first questions CEOs start to ask is, well, can we train one on my stuff? I don't want to give away the company's secrets. This is a big, powerful machine. I don't want to use ChatGPT, even though they say they'll not train on my data. I don't want somebody to accidentally do that. So even just to manage the risk, they started thinking about it that way. Yeah, that's one of the biggest things that people are doing in terms of trends. But even as they think about how do you use these. One of the trends I've started to see is people think about 
even to solve that security issue I was talking about before, you don't necessarily have to train one. Again, using that compared to a person example, you might have an LM that you train on CEO knowable data. And then you might say, well, you know what, we're going to have another LM that we train on things that we can publicly know internally within the company. So maybe the org chart is public information. You can train an LM based on that, and then you can answer questions about it. Maybe certain kinds of policy documents can go in an LM. You start to almost think about separate and maybe even smaller purpose-built LMs or machine learning kinds of systems for different parts of the organization, almost kind of by department, if you will. Similar kinds of things like that, where the LLM structure starts to resemble a more traditional organization structure. Are there any examples of industries or sectors where you think this Waldorf Garden LLM approach is beneficial? I think all of them. (laughs) (laughs) I know it sounds audacious, but I think the analogy that people will use. So when the IBM 360 came out, I think even Jensen Huang, our, our CEO, likes to tell a story. In the 50s, the idea of every company owning their computer was some pretty ridiculous. IBM owned the computer <laughs> and everybody shared it. You had to be a pretty big company to own your own early on, hence the whole time sharing thing. Over time, that changed, right? Over time, it became extraordinarily commonplace for companies to have their own computers. People started building their own networks within them and then we eventually ended up with the PC. I think you're going to see the same thing with machine learning systems. Right now, because the economics to build a viable LLM are so difficult, right? Like if you want to train GPT-5, you're probably going to need over a billion dollars to do that. But the cost is going to come down, I think, pretty radically over the next three to five years. The techniques to do custom LLMs are going to, we've already discovered several new ones, a little raw technique, low rank adaptation, and others that are becoming more commonplace. And I think that's only going to progress between that and there's so much capital going into different kinds of AI startups that, you know, there'll be a solution that you could probably own within your four walls for just about any kind of problem you can imagine. So there's going to be a marketplace bigger than I think what most people think that's coming with this stuff. And I agree. I agree. I think it, it could be used across many organizations, probably the ones with larger data sets, right? So the bigger companies and organizations of the world. The last couple questions. So Waldorf Garden LLMs, do you think they will replace enterprise software or do you think the two will coexist and be complementary to one another? I think there are classes of enterprise software it will replace and new kinds of enterprise software will emerge. It's going to be like every other revolution and that stuff will still be around. I mean, you can still buy enterprise software for doing sales data that was around before Salesforce. I mean, I think you could probably still build systems like that or use systems like that. They won't entirely go away, but the state of the art will certainly be systems that just tell you the answer to the question you have and then maybe let you interact with data in some way that makes sense for a human. But the idea that you have to be trained to use a SaaS product, I think, will largely go away because any SaaS product where you have to be trained as a human to do it is probably more complicated than the LLM version of that that's going to be a combination of a chat box plus some sort of model that you can interact with that helps you understand a solution to a problem or help you model something to convince some other kind of human, like a PowerPoint deck or something, that they should learn something different or you know think about something in a different way. Final question. If organizations are thinking about offering or adopting this Waldorf Garden LLMs, what steps do you think they should take to maximize the benefits while trying to minimize the risks, some of which you already had alluded to before with regards to hallucination? It's very easy to just expect it to be magic. And so I think Mm -hmm. tempering expectations a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of really great experiments you can run without making the big upfront investment. I mean, one of the most powerful things about maybe using OpenAI's APIs or some of these other organizations' APIs or even some of our own is that you're able to experiment with 
I know what's possible. You're able to explore the art of the possible, which helps you understand, okay, well, if we can do this small thing really, really well and do it on somebody else's LM, and then understand how your own data would help with that decision, that's how you start to build kind of the economic case for doing this stuff. And I think that's where some of the value is going to come in. I think it'd be a mistake for most organizations to say, oh, I need to build my own ChatGPT 5. Some will do it. I could see in the next five years, some companies saying, hey, I need to have the smartest one of these. I want to compete that way. Not against OpenAI, but like say, I'll just make up one car company versus another car company that wants to have a better one to design cars or whatnot. I think there's going to be a lot of big investments like that. I also think like any other industry, there's going to be a tremendous amount of just waste in terms of people either not understanding what they're capable of, expecting exact answers and having no tolerance for data even being slightly wrong, which kind of misunderstands kind of what an LLM is capable of. Even the best GPT-5 will probably still get hallucinate from time to time. You will still need a human in the loop for anything that's life critical or anything like that. So um, I think those are some of the key ones. And, and then as well, like I talked about the security one, I'll say this again, being very aware of what data a given LLM has been trained on and starting to think about, well, okay, maybe we need more than one. Maybe we need dozens of them, just like we might have dozens of VPs that understand their domain really well. And in fact, if you train them on that narrow domain, you might actually save money and not have to develop very, very expensive general LLMs. You can train them on their very specific function and almost kind of create coordinator LLMs, just like your you know, senior VP, that will coordinate the activities of the sub ones, almost kind of creating your own org structure out of synthetic brains mm-hmm. instead of biological ones. Well, that was my last question. I think this was a very, very insightful discussion. Appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and chat to us about some of these more cutting edge decisions to be made when you're dealing with LLMs, the AI tools, and what the next frontier may be. So appreciate you spending your time. Thank you everyone for joining us. And until next time. Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner LLP on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. In listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness, and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.